Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Shoes. Awooga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello, and welcome to issue two of the Dwarfcast's magazine rack, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. This is the series in which we reread, digest, and dissect every single edition of the Red Dwarf's magazine, issue by issue. I'm Ian Symes, your resident expert on all things magazine, and I'm joined, as always, by magazine virgins Jonathan Capps. Hello. And Danny Stevenson. Hello. For this, our second episode, we're reading the second magazine, volume one, issue two. So open up your PDF and prepare to flick as you listen. You can find a link in the show notes on your podcast app or at www.ganymede.tv. But before we go steaming in, let's get some vital context by seeing what was happening in the world in April 1992. Following last month's predictions of a sweeping Labour victory, the UK general election is won by the Conservative Party for the fourth time in a row, with the Sun claiming it was them what won it. A good month for complete cunts, with the LA police officers who beat Rodney King acquitted and Manchester United winning the League Cup. Neil Kinnock resigns as Labour leader, while Betty Boothroyd becomes the first female Speaker of the House. Comedians Benny Hill and Frankie Howard die within a day of each other, with some newspapers carrying quotes from Benny about Frankie's death, which turns out to have been given by his agent, who was unaware that he'd died the day before. What the fuck? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Benny Hill died and wasn't discovered for two days. Oh, bloody hell. Meanwhile, Euro Disney opens somewhere within a 50-mile radius of Paris, and the Freddie Mercury tribute concert is held at Wembley, featuring such legendary artists as David Bowie, Liza Minnelli, Annie Lennox, Elton John, and Zuccaro. The first episodes of Parallel 9 and Heartbeat Air, along with the last episodes of In Sickness and Health, The Mary Whitehouse Experience, and Spats. Plus, of course, Red Dwarf 5, with Back to Reality on air the same day as this magazine was released. At number one in the UK box office was Cape Fear, the film, not the Simpsons episode. And at number one in the music charts was, well, it was Stay by Shakespeare's sister, but we played that last time. So this is Finally by C.C. Peniston, which was number two at the time. (laughs) And speaking of number twos, let's talk shit about this magazine. Stay was number one for fucking ages, wasn't it? Uh, well, currently, Top of the Pops I was gonna say. on BBC4 yeah. <laughs> at the time of recording are on stay, uh, which can't be surely as bad as last year's repeats that just had fucking Brian Adams for 14 episodes <laughs> in a row. So anyway, it's a magazine, or magazine rather, as it still is, Red Dwarf Magazine. The cover on this one, what do we make of it? I like it. I really like it. Oh. It's based on a promotional picture, right? It's a, it's a There's a photo, book. yeah. There's, there's a photo that's on location at Sunbury Pump House, yeah. uh, and so the the characters are modelled on that with a more dwarfy background. Yeah, Vimmer is very casually posing with his big, <laughs> heavy boots that they're not supposed to have any control over. He's coquettish. He is very coquettish, isn't he? He looks like uh, Chris Barry as well, which is yeah. probably the first time a bit of Vimmer artwork, well, in the last um, issue, all of the, the Vimmer artwork kind of looked like they weren't doing Chris Barry with him. Yeah, the characters do look like the characters, <laughs> which is not the, not what wasn't the case with all of them in issue one. I realised listening back to the podcast that I didn't give my opinion on issue one's cover because I was intending to just be a neutral observer 
which didn't last very long. But it was shit. I thought <laughs> it was a really, oh, really? bad picture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you see, I don't, I don't mind it because it was. I I would always prefer going down the more stylized route than this particular style where it's trying to be as. Well, it's not that it's trying to be as close to reality as possible, but it is. It is based on a real photo, and it it's just easier to be a bit weirded out by it when it's so close to an actual picture. Whereas okay. if you go fully stylized, I much prefer that. But personal taste in it. It is, and I've, I will, this is Colin Howard's first contribution to Red Dwarf, as far as I know. Certainly in this magazine, and yeah, as a kid, it was Colin Howard's artwork that really grabbed me and made me take notice. There's some really iconic covers coming up in future issues, and so yeah, this being the first one in that style and in Colin Howard's very recognisable style. Yeah, it's yeah, obviously I like it. Beginning of an era. Total power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Colin Howard's very good with um, likenesses. Like he seems to have a knack for it. On the other hand, I wonder how much this works as a magazine cover on the shelves, because it doesn't tell you much about the contents. Mm. The only text is this issue: the secret life of Crichton. Whereas, you know, I'd have expected it to be splashed with, you know, exclusive Robert Llewellyn interview, Red Dwarf USA, USA report, yeah. etc. But a different time, I guess. Yeah. This reminds me, this starkness where the art is featured reminds me of like a, a subscriber's edition of a current magazine mm. where like with Doctor Who magazine and SFX and loads of others, subscribers get sent blank ones so that the artwork is you know, taking up the whole page. That's a really good point, yeah. It's a bit like uh, YouTube thumbnails, isn't it? This is like, this is almost like the equivalent of a naive youtube thumbnail that is just meant to be nice and clean and look nice but yeah. actually in the background i can see little snippets of other covers to come <laughs> and there's one for i think issue six which is more like a modern youtube thumbnail <laughs> <laughs> um, which certainly draws the eye so i guess they they learn that craft as they go along well, all that's still to come the bit in the middle is this magazine. Is this magazine, yeah. So let's turn over leaf and we come to the contents and the credits. And at this point, I think we ought to thank Martin Gray. Uh, please, special thanks to Martin Gray. The, the very specialist of thanks. Yeah. These are the greys of our lives. For people who might not actually have the magazine, we might have to explain why we're doing <laughs> so, that. So, <laughs> shall I read it? Thanks to Rob Grant, Doug Naylor, Robert Llewellyn, Chris Barry, Craig Charles, Danny John Jules, Hattie Hayridge, Norman Lovett, Martin Gray, Kate Cotton, and Martin Gray. Special thanks to Martin Gray. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to find out who Martin Gray was and I could not turn anything up that could possibly have been relevant. There was a footballer called Martin Gray who's now a manager but he was playing for a youth team at this time so I don't think there's any connection there. Do you think it could yeah. be like Alan Smithy, like a placeholder name? In a future podcast we may be getting an interview with Martin Gray. Martin Gray reveals all. He's the inventor of Better Than Life. The inventor of the colour. <laughs> <laughs> the, just the American colour. <laughs> um, he didn't get the license for the UK no. so we have to do with a boring old military grey rather than the exciting Martin grey <laughs> I'm actually a little disappointed no editorial because one of my favourite things about 
getting a new magazine is reading the editor's column, the editorial, mm. and like get. I mean, I used to read a lot of PC gaming magazines, and that was always like exciting because you're getting little tasters of what's to come, and it's always a good personality. Editors of magazines are always good personalities, but it's a kind of a shame that we didn't get one. We got one last month, but not this month. Yeah. Oh well. It feels like it's it's not hit its stride yet because it's kind of waiting for everything that's been set up in one to kind of come to fruition in three and four. So it seems like it's just kind of just ramping up to to getting you know what what it's planning to do in the first place, but can't get, quite get there yet. I feel like the timing was fucked a bit, wasn't it, of lo- launching this? Like maybe it needed to launch about six months earlier and really ramp up into series five and. For all I know, that could have been the original plan, and it wasn't possible. But like, I feel, I feel like Series Five is almost like background noise. Like they had the big preview and everything last issue, but it was a weird halfway house where they weren't entirely sure whether the people reading it had seen the series or not. And yeah, I feel like maybe if they'd had a bit of a run up to that, we could have got some really, really good preview stuff there. It makes sense to launch when the show's on air because that's when the brand is at its most prominent. But true, they could have done with maybe one or two issues in advance of series five or like have the first issue still on the shelves when series five starts but then immediately have the second issue yeah yeah that makes sense yeah so what have we got well taking up half the magazine again is the end (laughs) it's a good job it's good (laughs) yeah (laughs) lister's cookery ideas let's well see about that i'm definitely seeing a pattern here so like we have you have the interview well, you've got the exclusive. This time it's USA. Yeah. And then you have everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got confused for a minute there. I now realise that you're reading the contents rather than just <laughs> saying, right, what have we got? Yeah, 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 yeah. Reading the contents. Tasty tips from the curry connoisseur. But yeah, that's it's pointless me reading the contents, to be fair. <laughs> so, obviously, Ian, you read the magazine's when they came out and you were getting them in the shops, or at least your sister was, and then you were nicking them off her. Yes. So you knew about Red Dwarf USA pretty early on. No, because I didn't start getting it until much later than this. Okay. It, we were well on. I didn't start watching the show until later, until the next year. Oh, fact. okay. <laughs> it's not even I started watching it. So the thing is, Red Dwarf USA always seemed like this kind of hidden secret that no one knew about, because unless it was like... Unless you were like an Uber fan, but I didn't realise it was just out there and everyone knew about it at this point because I yeah, fucking didn't know about it. They always they always showed the well uh, early DJs, nineties DJs. They showed the pilot, I think, as part of their videos in the main hall. Yeah, I think that might be the cycle. first time I knew about it. Was it a DJ? Did they do that at the Coventry? Possibly. I mean, I remember seeing a version at the Coventry one, or at least one of the earlier ones, but it was just like, that was my first knowledge of there being a Red Dwarf USA, and then obviously the DVD Extra, which kind of delved into it a bit more, but like it was all of a sudden like as if all of a sudden all this information came out about it, but it didn't feel like it was known until then. You could do things secretly back then, I guess, or without being noticed, because it seems to me that maybe the first thing, the first time anyone heard about it, uh, publicly was this magazine and by this point it's already been filmed do you reckon that the other guys in the crew knew about it by this point or do you think they were finding out yeah, through this fucking magazine so <laughs> yeah. I think they knew well before this magazine was released but there's certain clues within the magazine that when the, these features were written they might not have known about them wow. but we'll come to all that yeah 
Okay. I think let's crack on with the magazine and, and yeah, yeah, talk day. about the, the bits like that when we get to them. So it's the end yeah. again. I mean, we said we hopefully won't need to spend as much time talking about the comic strip as we did in the first podcast because it's more of the same, really. Yeah. There's going to be a few specific bits to notice. Like I noticed on the first page in the big panel, um, you can see uh, Rimmer's desk and he's got one of his toy soldiers there. Mm. Oh, yeah. it's, oh really it's, nice. it's, yeah, it's the one from Marooned as well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Armee Nord. The art style of this comic is really nice. It's really strong, down to just, you know, the, the yellow theme of this, or like the nightlight theme of this scene. And like, yes, it's, it is basically verbatim just copying the episode, but I don't know, there's just a, a nice extra energy to everything. That yeah. It's a very worthwhile thing to do. And But see, look, Vimmer is not Chris Barry, whereas Lister very much is Craig Charles. I'm, I'm really interested in this. Like, there must have been some uncertainty or something about using Chris Barry's face. There must have been, because it looks nothing like him. Oh, they were just rubbish. Well, no, he's not. It's really good. Like, look <laughs> look at like Lister and Holly. Holly's stylized, but Holly looks like Norman, I would say. Kind of like how Norman would want to look, with, like, cheekbones and stuff. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. If Holly was Chris Tarrant, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Entrance for the Astronomer Ghost Exam. Please pay way to the teaching room now. Games Master. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's some obviously some nice little eggs in there. Like they've been putting in like Mike Butcher's name and. and Oh, yes, I literally just spotted that. Yeah. A book called Meeting Drunken Artists by Mike Butcher. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's a mad lad. And for some reason, Lister hands uh, Rimmer a bit of paper with the word fish written yes. on it. <laughs> I think that's a really good extra bit of shithousery from Lister. Just, <laughs> you, you can almost imagine saying, hang on a minute, and like making a meal out of writing it down. There you go, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be allowed to take his notes in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Holly's really stern. We'll get on to that in a minute when, um, with the cat, well, the cat scene right now. He kind um, of is, though, in the before... Um, I, I guess, but it's like, yeah. He is before the for stasis because he doesn't have the time to go slightly mental. Uh, throughout, though, even after the radiation leak, he I think he's drawn with pretty much the same expression every time, and I think that adds to it. Like, it's deliberately playing up his sort of mechanical side and his non-human side. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, in the TV version, he gets the opportunity to be more human almost immediately after Lister gets out of stasis. Yeah. Whereas here it's maintained throughout. Oh, uh, interesting artistic decision to not show Craig Charles's scrotum. And... <laughs> I'm disappointed. Yeah, very, very disappointed. Although he is talking quite out of his ass. At yes. <laughs> <laughs> the speech bubble looks like his ass is talking. I like the little shot from outside the ship as well. There's those little moments like that. It's like that would look really cool in like just atmospherically. If anyone was watching, they'd see that. But obviously they're right they're somewhere in the balance. That's the, ship, the fourth right? wall. That's the fourth wall. That window. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting detail, Danny? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the opening shot of Back to Earth. Yes. Yeah. 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 You push in so. and see Lister through a porthole. Because yeah. they're doing it a few times in this in this particular chapter of the comic as well, especially when um, Lister later on with Hollister. There's a shot from outside the ship. 
mm. with them talking. Um, although <laughs> I will say this, God bless them for trying, but the picture of the cat drinking the milk looks like it's. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to like it, I'll... there, Frankenstein. Look, <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will say though is that this artist clearly is a cat lover. You can always yes. tell because he's drawn this cat very nicely. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a good cat. And he's added a slurp to the. Uh, yeah, I know. I had, had to check what that was because I genuinely <laughs> like it was vomiting. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what has he done there? Is he, like, fucked up the tongue and just had to cover it up or something? The, the head's too far. Like, it's like as if his head was dumped in the milk and just whipped it up really quickly. Oh, yeah. I see. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. In reality, that cat must be sucking that milk. <laughs> willing it into his mouth. <laughs> willing it into his mouth, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's mimosium telekinetic milk. <laughs> Someone does need to tell Lister pretty urgently that if you give baby cats nothing other than water, they will die. Yes. I mean, to Just be fair, to... giving cats normal milk is not actually good for them, but you know, no, yeah, let's not true. get into that. Yeah, he needs formula. It's fine. They figure it out. See, like, don't give them normal milk. But if you lock them in a room full of uh, tin spaghetti hoops, they'll do just fine. They'll thrive. In fact, <laughs> question about the exam that Rimmer takes. Question about the question. Yeah. So question this please. is in the book, but is yeah. the book out by now? The yeah. book has happened. Yeah, Infinity. Oh, okay. yeah. Right, okay. Infinity was eighty nine. Okay. It was eighty nine. So it was a right to Berg's okay. theory. So, again, like, yeah, this guy's got a tape of the end. <laughs> I mean, that's obvious anyway, but, like, I would imagine, like, I don't know, knew the right people on the news group, Series 1 would have been bootlegged everywhere at yeah. this point. It would have been actually quite one of those quite exciting things, wouldn't it? I kind of wish I was <laughs> around at the time and just like, yes, I finally got my hands on Series when 1. When Dwarf was elusive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it, I have felt that just because I had, um, I had a period of time where Simons was very elusive, because it wasn't repeated, and I couldn't find Bite One video for Love Not Money. So, like, for a couple of years, actually, uh, Simons was completely elusive to me. I was wondering if de Berg's theory of thermal induction in poorer circuits is... Who is this lady? Why is she in red? (laughs) What does the red dress tell us about this lady? (laughs) After the exam is when Lister is called into the captain's office, and we do get an extra little tiny mini-scene... After Rimmer faints, Lister putting Frankenstein back and Holly giving him the order to go to the captain's office. Ah, yeah. Which is a new thing. It, is, it does highlight something as well. Another flaw in Lister's kind of plan is that Holly is all-seeing and all-knowing. And yeah. as soon as he sees the cat, which presumably he had just witnessed it, he would have told Hollister anyway. Mm, it's interesting because I think Holly doesn't necessarily actively do things unless someone asks him to. So I think it's more of a case of, like, he will monitor things and tell people about anomalies and whatnot. Okay. But, but I, I imagine there's... Because otherwise, like, there is zero privacy. Yeah, that's true. It's almost... <laughs> it's, it's almost yeah, it's, it's like the classic computer thing, is computers are very good at doing things, you have to tell them to do it. Because he says Holly's found a non-human life form on board, that's what Holly will tell. Yeah, that's um, a scam. Hollister. It's the same as why Holly didn't tell the crew that she got rid of the self-destruct bomb. Yeah, you don't know. Okay, I'll accept that, that's good. Yeah. In this first panel, when they're in the drive room, before we get on to Kajanski. The guy in the <laughs> foreground has seen some shit. A <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor bastard. Just to prove it. Oh, I think he's probably drunk too much of Pemberton's really good coffee, I think. <laughs> 
He looks a bit like uh, John Abenary. He looks like Rumor's dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a, a little Easter egg. <laughs> Rumor's dad was working in the uh, drive room the whole time. I just noticed, are all the chairs little jet chairs, like, hovering? Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, so they are. It's the future, mate. Yeah, yeah mate. Why not waste endless fuel on pointlessly <laughs> hovering chairs? <laughs> So yeah, we've got Kajansky and with other characters there's there's some debate about whether or not they're based on the actors that played them. With this one, the fuck's going on with Kajansky? She's definitely not Claire Grogan. No. Yeah, it seems like, not to say that someone with blonde 80s big hair is a bimbo, but she's been drawn as one. Like that is a classic, like that's that's what he's drawn her as. That's a, yeah, that's a comic book thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't think... I don't know, we're kind of biased about who is Lister's type because both Kachanskis are brunette. Yeah. The whole point about her is she's immensely beautiful to Lister but isn't necessarily like pin-up model. She's not the face that would launch a thousand ships. Yeah, maybe... Um, a million small ships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting direction to take. It's just jarring. Again, I, I enjoy the sense of space that the artist gives here. Like this room feels interesting. Loads of yeah. monitors everywhere. Feels very modern, apart from like lots of the, the little uh, coloured light switches, which is <laughs> extremely eighties. <laughs> but other than that, uh, it's. I like it. And the captain's office having a door as well. <laughs> Just being a table in the corner of the drive room is uh, is good. Uh, that's the artistic license from not having to deal with a television studio. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, not a huge amount to say about the Hollister scene, I don't think, because we yeah. saw Hollister last time around. Uh, we've already mentioned that there's the outside shot of sort of peering in at their silhouettes, which is really nice. Other than what the fuck is going on with that statue? It's a lamp, I think. Ugh. It reminds me of that statue that they're bringing in Series 8. Yes, that was exactly what I was going to say. The yeah. That they put in Ackerman's quarters. Chains over the tit. Like, it's sort of everywhere. Like, loads of different productions use it, and it's just, like, really noticeable. Oh, yeah. it's, it's sort of like the Wilhelm scream of um, of statues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, just I just like the art direction in general. Like, I like the occasional extreme close-up that he goes for to like convey a particular line that maybe we know well and mm. he always goes a bit too far it's like it's like McIntyre saying boo and being terrifying and then you've got Lister's broken hearts where it's just it's like, almost like an extreme caricature close up of a moment yeah. which I quite like <laughs> like Hollister with a really threatening fucking needle <laughs> yeah Hollister with a threatening needle and we'll see it a bit later as well Lister spitting out the dust it's really grotesque and Overly dramatic, but I like it as a as a thing, as a, a style. The last frame of Hollister saying "choose" is a really good example of going for an extreme view to to give emphasis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it really adds weight to that. Really moment. dramatic. It's almost like the lighting was chosen for that specific shot to work. Yeah, I want that panel of Lister and Fiji <laughs> with a ghost Lister looking down on him. I want it on a T-shirt. <laughs> I can like move faster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm looking for my sheep. <laughs> Everything the lava touches is our kingdom. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really good composition of picture actually because he genuinely manages to get a sheep and a cow and three horses in shot. Yes, <laughs> that's the sort of detail. It's so good. 
And two cats. Two cats. Of course. Baby cats. Again, like this artist loves cats. It reminds me a bit, like Lister's face in the background, it reminds me of, um, what's that t-shirt design there? Um, Was it Three Wolves? Three Three Wolf Night. Three Wolf Moon. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Link in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, Lister goes into stasis. It's pretty... There seems to be some sort of stasis bed that he has to lie down on. Looks like he gets tilted back into it. Which Which makes sense, Mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you got a quantum probability of zero, you know, gotta be comfy. Yeah. But the most interesting visually part of it, I think, is when Lister comes out of stasis, and they seem to have gone down the novel route and, and depicted the ship from infinity because it looks like Lister emerges and goes to like a tube station. Oh yeah, yeah. And then gets on the tube and gets to the drive room that way. Yeah. Rather than being just around the corner from the driveway. Yeah, in the, the end, everything, everything in Series 1 is a two-minute walk from anywhere else. Series 1 does end up doing a really good job of expanding the space, like in Waiting for God and stuff like yeah. that. But yeah, the, the end is not particularly good at that. But I like the idea of Winlister's walking around the ship and there's a really high-up shot looking down at the empty ship when just and like his his voice is just echoing through the corridors mm-hmm. and I just really like that idea like that is such an evocative image yeah all of a sudden the shots of Lister seem like on average a bit further away than the previous ones you see a lot of his full body rather than close ups of his face which emphasizes the amount of space around him and how empty the ship now is yeah, yeah. Great, but all it does is just make me pine for a film version of at least the you know the first couple of episodes. At least just like start with Infinity <laughs> and just get that done, and then you know tons of budget and yeah, and like a yeah, Love it. A, an adaptation of Infinity. Pining for the film, <laughs> and so yeah, then yeah, just as silhouette vomits ashes. Yeah, <laughs> the it's eyes good. are freaky as fuck. Yeah. It's really, really unnerving. <laughs> and we end on Holly's massive, massive face. Yeah, three million years. If you didn't know the story, it's a really good little um, cliffhanger. Yeah, it's a good cliffhanger point. Like the natural thing to do would be to take it up to Lister going into stasis, but on a dramatic level, that's not there. It's it's not the no. big one. Whereas, yeah, the big one three is million the, years is Yeah, even though this is mid scene, <laughs> like, yeah. in the TV version and in, you know in the in the story, it's it's not an end. It's just a great bit of emphasis. It's really interesting how. Holly's face has a very Crichton-esque look about it. I know. was about to say, yeah. Yeah, it's very angular, but I kind of like the idea of it being like very low-poly. Like, you can yeah, imagine Holly's poly. face being like a low-poly version of, of, of Norman's face. Low-poly Holly. Low-poly Holly. <laughs> I Norman like it. It's concluded in part three. Yeah. Which is good. I think I, for some reason I had it in my head that it was going to be four parts. So I'm, I'm I think I did as well, but I think they've now got to the point where, you know, they just need to deal with the cat now and then yeah. end. And then it's, yeah, the it's, hologram. They're doing about ten minutes per issue yeah. of the show. Yeah, makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, without wanting to give anything away, there will be more original comics to discuss in future episodes as well as uh, the adaptations. But for now... Let's crack on with the other half of the magazine. <laughs> it's going to be record time for a podcast. It might be. No. It, it's weird because like, you could argue it's like, oh, this is just filler. But it's really not, though, because it, it really does give Red Dwarf a different look. Oh, yeah. And it really it's is worth, it's worth existing for sure because it's sort of like their original vision kind of played out in coin. Especially considering that this was the only way to experience that story sure. at the time. Omnibus hadn't even come out yet with the pilot script in the back. Right, this okay. was the, the only only means of seeing mm. 
how Red Dwarf started, assuming that you got into Red Dwarf at any point after the 15th of February, which, you know, the majority of people probably did. Yeah. And, you know, Series 3 and 4 and and now 5 had given it a big boost in popularity, viewing figures up. The only way of knowing how the TV version started was this magazine. And it's the best thing in this issue, I would say, is the comic. <laughs> It's not necessarily. I'm not burning the rest of the issue for that, but, <laughs> but just it is. It, it, it's the it's the current centerpiece of the magazine, I would say. Um, mm. And while they're finding their feet with the other stuff, the comic stuff is kind of lands immediately, fully formed, mm. uh, which I think is is probably was very important at the time. Next up, an advert. Same one for Superman and Batman. Same one as the last yep. issue, and lazy. Just the publishers, so no money changing hands there and then Lister's cookery ideas <laughs> recipe number one so more of these to look forward to which is basically a redo of the curry gag from Polymorph yes, essentially and he's still eating peach skin he's still eating some fruit yeah but then he poured curry sauce all over it <laughs> that's it right next. that's it that is it. This is literally it. Um, well, the Peach Surprise is copyright and trademark Dave Lister 2180, which was the year he was... Oh, no, I was going to say it was the year he was born. That was 2155. It's the year that the um, the accident happened, according to the comic strip. Yeah. So he must have invented this while he was on Red Dwarf. Yeah. Uh, but, but before the accident. <laughs> Where yeah. he's got, you know, all these vending machines can make any food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why why not just have a curry? <laughs> Actually, I like I like the illustrations. I like I like the idea. It's just that's just what it is. It's one page, one gag. Well, the illustration in number six looks like an arse. <laughs> well, it is a peach. Fill tiny bum with chili sauce. <laughs> oh, Phil tiny bum. He's a good lad. Oh, he's great. <laughs> oh, special thanks to Phil tiny bum. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is the quickest that an analysis of a feature has descended. <laughs> so, there's really there's not much to say. There's not much to say. There's not much to say. Lister, Lister eats spicy food and he doesn't eat much fruit. <laughs> yeah. He really doesn't. He, he, it's although he eats lots of curries and curries have lots of tomatoes in them and tomatoes are a fruit stew. And he's allergic to tomatoes. They make ah, him instantly sneeze. Did they so maybe... know, or was he making that up for the sake of the joke? I can never work that out. A joke. The next picture, I have a, I have a question for all you guys because it's they're, something I don't yes. think I've ever noticed before. They're pointy tits, Danny. Uh, not pointy tits. No, not the Madonnas. No, okay, not right. about them. I'm on about the painted fingernails. I've never noticed that before. <laughs> yeah. Never Does ever she noticed have them. Yeah. I've never noticed that in the show. Maybe just dark lighting and stuff. But just yeah, that's an interesting detail. I don't think I've ever noticed. Yeah, it's interesting because she knows not to paint her whole hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a GTI feature. Ah, <laughs> yes, that that makes sense actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the that's the photo that um, Robert Llewellyn's mum had on her wall of of her son and his wife. That's great. Yeah, it's funny. And so yes, the Robert Llewellyn interview. Now then, so this first paragraph it says, "No stranger to the comedy circuit." I can't decide whether that is an intentional joke or a missed opportunity as a good joke. Circuits, because he's a robot. Because he's a robot. Com- <laughs> and comedy circuit, He's a com- he is a comedy circuit, in a way. The comedy circuit board. Yeah, I don't know. And that is the most interesting thing in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Being unfair, this is like, this is us spoilt 2000s yeah. fans yeah. perspective here. 
Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, there was nowhere else for insights on Crichton's mask at the time, or how long it takes, or how difficult it is. I mean, he get he gets the opportunity here and takes the opportunity to complain about how physically draining it is. It just strikes me. <laughs> he says stuff like it, it get it gets worse to deal with the physical side of it as I get older. Yeah, <laughs> this is nineteen ninety two. You ain't got a fucking clue, mate. <laughs> Thirty years later, still doing it in your sixties. <laughs> when you're in your sixties, this costume is going to literally put you in hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he constantly says during every series, "This is it. I'm not doing it again. Doing I can't it again. cope with this, mate." <laughs> Thirty years later, it's like childbirth. Your body just forgets, and then you just do it. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. Like, yeah, bless Robert. He's probably the one I've heard the the, the same stories from the most out of all the cast. But you know, there's more to talk about when it comes to Robert's performance because it involves so much more for him to be that character. Than yeah. as for you know, like we don't ask how long it takes for Craig to put in his. Actually, no, people do ask that fucking question. How long <laughs> it takes for him to put his dreads in? Um, <clears throat> he has them on for the whole yeah. series, doesn't he? he? Has them weaved in. I think it's a com- it's a combination of it's the most interesting story, like the basic story of how he does his job is the most interesting out of the four or five. Plus, he is the one of the better storytellers and orators. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's the most talkative, because that would be Danny, but he's <laughs> the best at telling a coherent story ahead of Danny. <laughs> I was going to say, like Danny is talkative in a way that, ironically enough, a cat is talkative. There's lots of noise happening, but you have no idea what they're saying. The fucking word. Yeah, and again, like, oh, you know, I like it when I have a... I find it interesting, actually. The interviewer says, uh, obviously, you must love... <laughs> What what was the example they gave you? I love episodes like Dimension Jump, where you uh, get to have your mask off. Like as if there wasn't a much better example of that in the same series. <laughs> <laughs> that Robert. Then you get to appear out. without the costume for about forty seconds. Yeah, exactly. in that one. That was one pre-record. <laughs> and then he wrote, "Oh yeah," and there was also DNA. <laughs> I guess that would yeah. If that was a whole pre-record day, which I assume it would have been, because it wouldn't have been on the night. That's actually probably quite significant because you know. Yeah. You if he didn't have to do any yeah. any other pre-records in Crichton gear. Yeah, you can imagine a whole day basically being the Ace Rimmer universe stuff. Anyway, that's completely irrelevant. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess that's like what's interesting here is that Robert must have had Red Dwarf USA cooking in his brain at this point so I mean, literally the last sentence in the interview is yeah. then I'm doing some work over in America and then I'm coming back here uh-huh. like that's literally what he's talking it's about the, it's <laughs> the most interesting thing in terms of yeah, trying to place it because he's being secretive about it and this is my theory about you know this interview was clearly written way before the magazine was released because the magazine has a big feature on the pilot that's already been shot at this point, but with the interviews, uh, I'm about to go over and do some work in America. So not only that, but he's being so coy about it. Like he's not saying I'm yeah. going to do the American version of Red Dwarf. It's uh, I'm going to do some work in America. Well, this yeah. interview was, I think, this and the next few, I think, would have all been from their set visit. Yeah, more specifically on the Sunday when they started rehearsing quarantine so yeah so he doesn't we know from his book that at the end of filming for series five That's no one he, else knew yeah. like he was still keeping it inside him um that ah, must have been awful to be honest 
<laughs> but no, uh, yeah, they don't confirm specifically that that's when this was written, but we assume that it is. Uh, yes, I think it might have been mentioned in passing that they sat down. Like then we sat down with Robert for. A oh, bit. in the previous. Yeah, in the previous magazine. magazine yeah. Oh yeah, it says any plans for the future? I've got a show going out in February called The Reconstructed Heart. So this was <laughs> before February, before February. <laughs> and the yeah, it's an April yeah. magazine. And if you want to watch The Reconstructed Heart, then you can find a link to the GNTV article on it in the show notes to this. Hey! No, as I've mentioned it, I just remembered that I'd <laughs> done a thing. Well, it's a bit, at this point, it's a bit like The Simpsons did it, isn't it? <laughs> so, GNT's probably got an article about it. 20 years. 20 years. I think that's it. <laughs> Just realised that the, the promo photo they've used in the end of the interview is actually quite scary. <laughs> the, so the last one, that is a slightly different shot, isn't it, from yeah. like the one that is that is well known? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite... interesting. I think it might be the first time I've seen it. On the PDF, though, it's really blurred out when it just yeah, it's like, it like a like a skull. It's really freaky. Yeah, <laughs> this will go. This will be the uh, no. It actually won't be the slider image because we've already got. <laughs> I've already made that. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. In the in the actual magazine, you can see that it's quite. But I can see why. It's yeah. From a distance, it looks like um, the head from Art Attack. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, <laughs> I'm the head. <laughs> Why is it about disembodied heads and northern accents? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he quotes Sparehead Three in this, like paraphrasing Sparehead Three. I wanted to do something with that. I wanted it to be Crichton's dad. You know, I hate you, you bloody silly bastard. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like like Dad say. That is almost something your dad would say to me. Oh, to to you? Yeah, yeah. I don't think he'd ever say I hate you. <laughs> you just think that. It's like ah, I'm only joking, Captain. Just... You cunt. <laughs> That's a direct quote. Right, a direct quote. I imagine our listeners have heard that one before. I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, like it just ad libbing maybe isn't Robert's strong point. <laughs> <laughs> there is a mention of writing. So they, they focus a bit on the fact that he is a writer. Um, oh yeah. And I mean, I don't think they directly ask him, "Would you write an episode?" But yeah, and he talks about the fact that him being a writer makes him. Respectful to, to Robin Doug's writing and doesn't change things. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> I like the question as well from the actual official Red Dwarf magazine. Do you think there's much scope for development with a character like Crichton? Is there much more the writers can do with him now? <laughs> quite... Insane to write. your your characters. Yeah, it's kind of run its course, really, hasn't it? <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I'm assuming all the way through this that I'm reading Howarth and Lions in these. Yeah, when, whenever. This magazine has a bit of a, a voice, and like, there's a definite tone that you just, you just end up thinking, "Do you know what? Fuck off!" Like, <laughs> do you even like Wendell? People could say that about us, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> and they have fucking right, and rightly so, because there are times in our twenty-year history where we've been right old cunts. But um, in the first issue, there were there were very begrudging of the fact that they were on a set visit and that they had to wait for an hour somewhere. It's, it's almost like well, the director else. got sacked. 
Well, yes. <laughs> also, there's a funny. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm going back to issue one, but I was rereading it, and there's a bit when they're talking about the advantages of after they complained about all the things that are terrible about seeing an episode of Red Dwarf, like oh, it's uncomfortable, it's cold, and then it's hot. <laughs> um, they, they say that it's uh, it's a shame that normal audiences don't get to see the uh, the outtakes and the uh, the messing about between takes. It's like, oh, you fucking change your tune down the line. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why they didn't like it because they. (laughs) Oh, it's their special thing. (laughs) That's unfair, probably. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a bit of a dim view of Howarth and Lines for like quite a few years, I think. I think maybe. And it's because of of the occasional bit of snark in the program guide, particularly around smeg ups and smeg outs and, you know, things that we really, really like. Exactly. But on the other hand, like the program guide was the most invaluable resource for any Red Dwarf nerd for such a long time before the internet, you know, before I had access to the internet and before the internet really became the place to go for information. You could argue that they start writing in. Yes. Which we'll come to. (laughs) Which we will. But first, uh, Hollygrams, which is the letters page. So this this issue was must have been written before issue one even came out, right? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I'd forgotten that the the letters for issue two were all like made up, you know, example letters. Yeah. Because the because issue one ends with a call to action saying get your letters in. But I assume print deadlines being the way they were, that they wouldn't have actually had time for people to write in and get their stuff in in time to meet the print deadline for this issue. And that is also why they set the caption competition in issue one and don't resolve that until issue three. They give people two months uh, to get their entries in. So it was monthly then? Yeah. But pre-email and all the rest of it, like the magazine being released, people buying the magazine, people reading the magazine cover to cover to get to the bit that says send the letters in and then write a letter and send it and wait for it to arrive. They probably didn't have that much time between issue one coming out and issue two going to print, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. However, we are people from the internet. And so we can put a call out for people to send letters to us and get them immediately. In your fucking face, Howarth and Lions. <laughs> Mike Butcher. And Mike Butcher. <laughs> well, yeah, no, sorry, I'm just I'm I'm transposing <laughs> them onto everything. So in the last issue of this magazine, Rack, we asked you to get your letters in talking about this magazine or our podcast on this magazine, and we've got some here. I'll read them out. <laughs> if they're rubbish, we'll edit them out of the podcast. <laughs> We'll read out snippets from some of the longer comments, so if you want to read the full thing, then head over to Ganymede.tv and read the comments there. So Warbadog sent us a letter saying, Loving the This Is England 92 context, I didn't know what Red Dwarf was in March 92. I bought the first issue of Bucky O'Hair comics that month instead, having got bored of Thunderbirds, the comic. What was I doing in March 92? Playing on the Commodore 64 and nothing else, I think. <laughs> I was definitely not wanking it, and I was nine. <laughs> uh, I may have been reading Sonic the comic at this time, if Ooh. that was out yet. I can't remember when that started. Um, I was reading the Beano, for sure. Mm. International Debris says, Love the look of the ship in the comic strip. It's how the big-budget comedy drama remake of the novels that I'm planning in my head looks. Mm-hmm. Holly's facts, I didn't get as much joy out as everyone on the Dwarfcast. <laughs> I like the structure of the joke, but the space stuff just had Holly in proper theory, Italia relative-style stupid mode. 
And not being a football fan, it took a while to realise that the Kevin Keegan thing wasn't actually going anywhere. <laughs> I'm not a football fan, but I fucking thought that was a <laughs> Poor bastards who aren't football fans after there you this go. Horses fuck horses, man. That's, that's all it is. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> they tend to. And a sheep and a cow. That's how they make more horses. <laughs> Pete Part 3 wrote in to say, I'm trying to envision how exciting this would be back in the day. The adaptation of the end would have been gold dust in a time before repeats and an official VHS. The news and Chris Barry interview I would have read and reread countless times. The rest of it, the interview with the BTL creator, Holly's Facts, and the Could You Pilot Red Dwarf, I've never made it through properly in the last 25 years. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're in for a treat. <laughs> uh, Ridley says these captions are terribly unwieldy. Very <laughs> good joke. Very good. Quinn Drummer, it's impressive just how creative a lot of the made-up nonsense is when it really didn't need to be. Like the stuff with mm. Professor Nida Lewis is clearly written by someone who has at least glanced at the philosophy section of a library and obviously has the same sort of interest in it and the questions it raises as Robin Dug when writing these types of episodes. All the informative stuff, interviews and that is really great. I can't imagine how exciting that would have been for a proper fan in 92 to have access to that sort of thing. Usually you'd be lucky if there was a piece in the Radio Times that you'd read over and over. Mm. Really enjoyed the magazine overall. I usually struggle with comics as I end up just reading the text and ignoring the pictures, so what's the point? <laughs> I kind of feel that way about comics. Uh, but knowing the end as well as I do, I found myself looking at the detail the artist had put into the art of it more and enjoying their interpretation of it. Glad I wasn't the only one to pick up on the 159182 thing. I read that as a little visual gag in showing Rivers incompetence, though it does suggest that you can't read. <laughs> Captain Bollocks picks up on an interesting point from the previous podcast. It's interesting, though not surprising to me, that your first thought about the Villa Leeds game was to read upon the score, whereas mine was to look up the date. <laughs> Something about knowing the set visit was 24th of November 1991 for a magazine that came out in March 92 just added a wee bit of extra contextualisation for me as someone who typically remembers the 90s against a backdrop of what was happening in the WWF. Um, on that note, Hulk Hogan won at WrestleMania during the month that this magazine came out. That was I found that in my research, but didn't bother to include it. That's a fucking classic WrestleMania as well, I think. That is that a race. pretty big one. Um, anyway, the date might also offer some clues as to the mysterious Rob Grant meeting, if anyone knows what the shooting dates were for Series 5, and therefore which episodes had still to be shot. Presumably there wasn't too much left, given that there were a few weeks out from Christmas. And I believe that my colleague Jonathan Capps has done some research on this matter, of trying to pin down the dates. I did. I did a little bit of digging. So it's a fair point, and probably something we should have addressed in the last episode, rather than <laughs> mooning over the fact that Leeds were better than Villa at that one point in history. No other, definitely. Um, so yeah, be careful because in between recording this and it going out, we're playing Leeds. Oh, fuck. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll we'll make the decision as it comes. So yeah, um, it's all well documented, kind of the bits that she struggled with. But it is indeed correct that from the first to the fifteenth of November, they filmed High and Low, The Inquisitor, and Hollowship, which are three of Juliet's four episodes. And this episode that they were filming during the visit was. Terraform, so it's her last episode filming because the next two are Quarantine and Back to Reality in which she does not receive any sort of credit I believe um, so that is a correct assumption that <laughs> this is probably when everything just ended for her at the, on the show so I went back and watched the DVD documentary just to kind of see if I could get some 
context about what maybe they would have been rushing around from uh, on on the Friday the twenty second, which is specifically when the episode was filmed, and when when they arrive in the studio, they uh, they say they're coming to the end of dress rehearsals. Uh, Rob is in makeup. Doug is missing, and Rob is whisked off to an urgent meeting with Juliet May. Um, and Doug then has this to say in the documentary about that day. That had to be edited uh, for the audience to see before the show, and I said to her, hey, let's do this together, and she said, no, 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 I want to do it on my own. I shot it, I know how it all goes together. And I went, but usually I'm going to edit it. And she said, no, 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 you, it'll be great, it'll be fine, just chill, it'll be fine, let me do it. So we then had the dress rehearsal, uh, and the little film inserts are played in, uh, just to get an idea of the timing and how the show all works. And that bit came in and just was just awful. Just didn't work at all. And the cast were all going open mouthed looking at this. So I then had to, I, I said, look, let me have a play with that. And I took it and re-edited it during the uh, dinner break in time for the audience to come in. So when the magazine arrived, Doug was not there because he was locked away re-editing this. So he was doing the edit that we were talking about. Yeah, (coughs) at at that exact time. Rob then being called into this urgent meeting with Julia May could have been about something else. She was, after all, preparing to direct an episode of television that was going to be filmed in front of an audience, so it could have just been normal stuff, or it could have been everyone... (laughs) <laughs> Rob and Doug and Juliet in a room talking about this VT but that Friday is the last day she works on Red Dwarf because Saturday is a day off and Sunday is when quarantine rehearsals begin and the fact she's not in the credits for quarantine suggests to me that she didn't yeah. do a minute of work on that episode so there you go it's nice it was very satisfying to see that Rob's or that Doug's recollection fit fitted in with this kind of you know at the time yeah um, quite impressive really <laughs> yeah Poor Juliet May. Like rewatching that documentary, it reminds you how completely thrown in the deep end she was, with not even the most basic of support. <laughs> but there you go. Because Doug says, looking back, maybe we should have got her a, a te- what was it, a technical, um, technical, a technical, not a technical yeah, technical director, a consultant to. And it's like, well, yes, mm. obviously, if you were going to hire someone that has absolutely no sci-fi experience, maybe that is what should have happened, yes. Yeah, it was clear that they were replacing Ed Bai with two people already, in that there is a separate producer hired, mm. whereas Ed was producer and director. Mm. But maybe you needed, Ed did so much and had such a gargantuan brain of how to make a really complicated yeah. sitcom in a... 80s and 90s TV studio that actually you needed like three people to cover yeah. all the knowledge base that Ed has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Ed is as much Red Dwarf as Rob and Doug creatively, yeah. I would say. Because when Andy Damony came in, in Series Six, he had a bit of a he had a bit of a grounding in terms of like the technical aspect and understood it to the point where he could utilize it and make it work. But yeah. Juliet obviously didn't have that grounding. Even then, though, know. Series Six had to be quite a different show. Yeah, definitely. Presum- presumably, part of the reason being that Andy Diamini, Andy Diamini, um kind of had his style, had knows what he liked, and so the show adapted to him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like this in the documentary, you catch you just catch jumping a series like a series five of a series, series. fucking five. Yeah, <laughs> like of all the ones to jump into, like that was like possibly the worst <laughs> yeah. one to jump into. Series four would have been potentially doable with yeah. you know White Hole would have been the most complicated episode, I think. 
Um, but that's it. <laughs> and Ed didn't even do that one, so <laughs> he was still yeah. doable. Yeah, Paul Jackson that did one, that one. So that's yeah, fine. Yeah, as, as substitutions go, getting Paul Jackson off the bench is, yeah. isn't bad. <laughs> Deep squad, they're the deep squad back then. Captain Bollocks goes on to say, I'm not so keen on some of the in-character material now that, like bad, i.e. most fanfiction, it doesn't actually read like the characters in question, more like a one-dimensional caricature of them, as regurgitated by a renter-talking-head Gary Bushell. Otherwise known as Series 8. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the thing. It does reduce them down to Lister likes curry, mm-hmm. cat like cat is fashionable. Yeah. And really, it's just a cunt. <laughs> yeah. On that note, because it was mainly the could you be a Space Corps captain thing that <laughs> drew, drew the most ire from us and the commenters. Uh, so Bromley said, something that genuinely shocked slash amused me as I was rereading the mag was Cat's reply to question four of the command suitability test. The cat answers uh, option C, let it gobble you, before crossing it out and explaining, sorry, misunderstood the question. Very cheeky, and that may well have gone over my head when I was 13. <laughs> Pipe me! <laughs> something else that genuinely shocked me of course was turning to the second page and seeing that there was a third one as well <laughs> <laughs> yes oh yeah. good it's more, it's more yeah. <laughs> they they fixed that a little bit uh, in this one I think maybe you could argue the diary thing which we'll come to maybe overstays it's welcome a little bit but uh, yes good point <laughs> but yeah. um, final point from say. Uh, we need a Danny Blessed cameo in every cast from here on in. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> <laughs> Took him a month to recover his voice from that. <laughs> Flapjack sends in several small points. Naturally, I hate the idea of Crichton being directly responsible for the deaths of the Nova 5 just as much as I did in Infinity, but I wonder if Howarth and Lyons realised that they were cannon welding when they wrote that. With it not being so easy to rewatch all the episodes with quite an intercheck, they might have just assumed that the book explanation has already been referenced in the show. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Flapjack also points out, the content wasn't great, but in hindsight it's funny that they did a feature with the premise who in the crew would take charge if there was no Holly during Series 5. Little did they know. <laughs> the there's, yeah, there's never no been a discussion really. about that either, has there, in the show? Like, yeah. who would obviously, like, Rimmer would immediately try and take try charge, to. but obviously yeah. wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> Lister, Lister's in charge, isn't he? Yeah, yeah that's pretty clear. Effectively, yeah. yeah. And finally, from Flapjack, I'm now disappointed that we never got Nirvana Crane as played by Brian Blessed. <sighs> Transmit, just saying. I've got it, I've got, got it. Yeah, I've got it. You make love like a Chinese meal. Small portions, but so many courses. <laughs> I, like, I like that. <sighs> that recreates the tension of like, if Brian Blessed said, you make love like a Chinese meal, everyone would go, oh, what's he going to say next? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dance monkey dance. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. <laughs> couple more letters uh moonlight says i think i finally worked out where the absurdly common misspelling scutter with a c comes from which always confused me given i'd never once seen it spelled that way in official media but yeah in issue one of the comic strip there's a scutter with a c instead of a k mm. bastard awful really and finally dave I came to this as someone who's a fan of comics but has somehow never read this magazine before so I found the adaptation of the end particularly interesting. The best aspect of it is obviously the infinite budget approach that comics allow so this is immediately the most fully realised version of a ship the size and scale of Red Dwarf that we've ever seen 
and all the long shots that show you more of the ship and its architecture are great. Yeah. I'm not convinced that just taking the script to the end and translating it faithfully to the page always works, though. The nature of early Red Dwarf means there are quite a few static scenes of characters standing around talking, which isn't the most thrilling thing to depict in a comic. Mm. It also feels like the structure of the strip is a bit odd. The first chapter just stops when it's filled its page allocation. There's no sense of a natural cliffhanger or end point here. Which is true, uh, but also interesting that we just said the exact opposite about uh, issue two. Yeah. So. yeah. Just so happened. Maybe it was just by coincidence they reached that point <laughs> in the page count and go, oh yeah, that's a good place to end it. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, I think it's most interesting when it departs from the show a bit. I really like that chilling panel of McIntyre as it gives us a new perspective on material we already know well. I'd like to see more stuff like that. It's pretty spooky. Pretty spooky for everyone. Our sack is now emptied of all the mail. Uh, and so if you'd like to replenish our stocks, uh, then please <laughs> leave a comment on this article over at www.genemy.tv if you'd like us to read your letters in the next issue of this magazine rack. But now we return to 1992. There's some folly of me turning a page. Uh, to Red Dwarf USA, an exclusive report. Well, this is going to be juicy. Yeah. Do you know what this is? <laughs> this is every single fact that anyone ever knew about the show, about Red Dwarf USA, until we got the documentary on the DVD. Yeah. Like this, this is the source of all of the things we knew about. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Because it's got everything. It's got all the little bits. I'm not entirely sure if I remember anything about David Lynch. I've heard that before as a rumour, or like as a little factoid, that David Lynch was interested in, in doing it. What I found really interesting about this is the mixture of fact and opinion, which is like, it's neither one thing or the other. But like, they talk about the fact that Craig Bierko... And I think this is where all the the sort of received wisdom that Craig Bierko was rubbish because he was he was all buff and sexy and not what Lister was. I think that all comes from here. Yeah, it's bollocks. It is bollocks. <laughs> Craig Bierko's great. He's, he's, he's perfectly serviceable in Red Dwarf USA and he's clearly a very, very, very funny person mm-hmm. in other things and IRL. Yeah. I've not met him, but from seeing him, IRL. <laughs> Where's the quote? Another bone of contention is the casting of Craig Bierko as Lister. Bierko is perhaps not the most handsome guy in the world, but he certainly comes close. Lister, meanwhile, as Grant and Naylor have tried to point out, is supposed to be a total slob, a piece of slime, no less. Do those two have to be mutually exclusive? Yeah, exactly. He could... <laughs> yeah, he can be an attractive... I mean, what does it say about Craig Charles? <laughs> yeah. Oh, this... Hang on. He can't be Lister. He's attractive. Yeah. Yeah, famously very unpopular with... Um... <laughs> with Red Dwarf fans that that like men. I mean, they claim one of the reasons the script was rewritten was to write Lister as more of a Craig Birko type. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Like, they rewrote the library book line, and... Uh, yeah, the big change is that USA Lister is that thing of, like, you know, whatever that Kachansky picks up on, that he's non-committal and he... He's more lazy than slobbish. He's mm. just coasting through life and he's got no drive and no motivation. Yeah. But I think that's also true of early Arlister. Yeah, for sure. I think that later on he gets drive and he's, like, he's got all this unfulfilled potential. But that, that's a, actually a key aspect of Lister that he could have made something of his life but couldn't be asked. And I don't think 
that changes massively. It's just more pronounced in the US version at the get-go than it is in the British version. Like more in the books, you kind of get that he's kind of like that all the time. But in the in the in the show, you could easily have seen it as Lister is a pretty normal guy just wanting to get back to Earth and all the rest of it. But then there's all the slobby behaviour and stuff kind of sort of starts after episode one. So mm-hmm. it could be just the fact that, well, I'm on this ship, I don't <clears> give a shit. Like, don't fucking matter, does it? You know what I mean? He just he just literally just lets go because mm-hmm. why yeah. fucking shouldn't he? <clears throat> I, I think a big prob- part of the problem with this is not so much misunderstanding Craig Burko's, like, ability or potential range that he could have it's also like misinterpreting Arlister quite badly into the into that caricature of uh, curry slobbiness but but you're absolutely right like the 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 kind of the layabout um handsome american you know type uh, like you know stereotype whatever that craig burko kind of slots into is is just the american version of what lister is to us really yeah like they're not. They're not incompatible. Yeah, it takes way. a very large lack of imagination to not be able to look at Craig Bierko and and figure out how you can fit him into the existing character. Definitely. Yeah, and then naturally, if USA Red Dwarf had taken off, then it would have adapted as time went on yeah. to suit the particular skills and the expertise of the actor in the same way that the British versions did all the time. Yeah. Like, t- take on the best bits of what Chris can do and Danny and Craig and Robert. Well, so. that's absolutely right. And what, like what you were saying, Danny, about the list of slobbiness stuff kind of maybe creeps in a bit. I mean, that's Craig Charles <clears throat> was sitting down in a canteen dipping someone else's... <laughs> Sausage and some beans on a, uh, some ketchup on a table and sticking fags <laughs> in his ears like that. That is informed right by now. Behavior. I'm eating scrambled egg with a cob from a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not like oh god, Craig Charles does that. So I guess we have to we have to find someone that does that in America. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting though how it's already obvious that that Rob and Doug are not happy with this. <laughs> yeah. Even as it's being even if the pilot has been made, they're not happy with it because they're saying how much of it is going to be made with them involved is kind of open to question. It's like uh. so Yeah. I couldn't remember whether they included the second pilot stuff at this stage and it doesn't. No, I don't at this stage the first pilot has been shot mm-hmm. and now it's in the hands of the um the networks to see if it gets picked up and if it gets taken on. But I would imagine, undoubtedly, by the time the first pilot was finished, Rob and Doug were going, right, we need to do a second pilot, we need to change this, we need to do whatever. Mm. So Rob and Doug would have already been in the mode of this is going to fail, we need to change it. And that's not reflected here. So maybe they kept that guarded from presumably Howarth and Lyons who were writing this. Because it can't have been long between the pilot being in the can and Rob and Doug deciding to make a new pilot. Yeah. Basically, yeah, it happens very. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's time to write this report in between that happening, so they don't quite have the full story. As we were saying, like all the info that we knew about Red Dwarf USA comes from here, and the only thing that's not covered is the fact that there was then a, a second pilot that more that you know a couple of the characters were recast mm-hmm. and they're Terry Farrell and etc. Unless yeah. they're, unless they're tone aligned because because yeah they do end with oh, who knows it could twenty six episode season <laughs> like they they could just you know they could know about the second pilot but are just like putting a positive bit at the end yeah right? but <laughs> and, that's and the pilot was so bad that well, Robert yeah. Doug decided <laughs> I mean to be honest though like the the, the fact that the, this is this weird combination of fact and 
opinion. Um, yeah. You can't really imagine them being too picky about you know saying that oh we've seen it and it's complete bollocks. It does say we'll we'll be presenting a fully illustrated review of the American pilot in an upcoming issue. So uh, can I ask, does that happen? <laughs> it does. Okay. The content of which I will not reveal, but it does happen. Good. Aha, I'm excited. Meanwhile, there is a very, very small advert for 2000 AD. Yeah. Is that meant to have some sort of art on it? <laughs> I mean, what is some it? placeholder. It cover. feels very placeholder. I don't even know what the fuck that is supposed to be. <laughs> so is this? Maybe if we read 2000 AD, there'd be a reference to something, but I don't know. Yeah. If anyone's listening that that is familiar with mid nineties two thousand AD, that that's a sentence. <laughs> if anyone is from the twenty nineties, <laughs> please rescue us from the following uh, four pages of the magazine. <laughs> right, you say that this has a lot of potential. It's it's just lost in a sea of words, I think, because there's some real attempt here to weave this in <clears throat> but it just ends up being a bit confused so, so, sorry, yeah. this is Arnold's diary Arnold J. Rimmer, my life, my diaries as dictated to Holly and I think that's where I sort of rub against it because there is a lot of repetition of the Holly's writing everything down verbatim yeah. jokes he explains things to Holly rather than to you know dear diary type thing it's, yeah. it's more of a dear Holly and so he a, he brings it on himself by like making it a conversation with Holly rather than just pure dictation. Yeah. But the fact that there's so much of those kind of jokes takes up the bulk of the three pages of solid text that we get. Yeah. The layout doesn't really help. It's dull to read. It's almost like they had to find a framing device for this because it is, mm. you know, it's a bit of fan fiction and it's kind of fun. Like when I first came across the uh, November 24th, like, Holly, I'm in big trouble. Um, because he's looking for Kachansky's hologram disc, and I was like, oh, nice, like, this is confidence and paranoia adjacent fanfic, and this is pretty cool. He's like, this is him panicking before he managed to find it and hide it. But it isn't, because Crichton exists, and mm. it's never mentioned, and it's, it's almost like it's a time after confidence and paranoia where Rimmer mm. had custody of it, and as far as we're aware, he always had it. Um, because... Lister thinks he gets it, but it's Rimmer again, and then it's forgotten about. So at some point, Lister found it again. And uh, anyway, it's um, it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that they had the need for a framing device. The diary itself is enough of a framing device. You could tell a really. It's an interesting way to tell a Red Dwarf story through one character's perspective over several days. If it was just a little bit more simple. Yeah. And focused a bit more on the, what the story is. I wonder if it's creatively, it's probably a lot more challenging to write Rimmer in his head in a diary yeah. than it is to parrot what you would imagine Chris ranting on about something would be in the show, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it does serve a purpose having him direct everything to Holly because, because it it's easy allows... to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Which is fair enough because no one no one no one can just waltz in, go inside Rimmer's head and write a you know, a, a few pages of diary entries and it'd be like amazing. I mean we've all read log nineteen ninety six. Well, exactly. We've all had that particular log plop into our lives <clears throat> November 26th well like the cat for a start Holly I'm getting worried about him he's beginning to make Gary Glitter look dowdy 
<laughs> Let's drop that one in. They've definitely got a bit of an obsession with Gary Glitter because he does make an appearance. You know, <laughs> an point. infamous appearance. An infamous appearance, yeah. Prior to the late 90s, he was in the comedy chair for overly flamboyant, yeah. ridiculous-looking pop stars. Yeah. And then he, he started occupying a very different comedy chair soon after. If there's any justice, that chair will will have direct current run through it <laughs> yeah. at some point. I'm fairly impressed that there's a reference to Caspacho Soup Day in this. I yeah, I do like that gag that it goes from the 24th to the 26th. Yeah. And and then on the 26th he said, "Yes, I spent all day in bed yesterday." Which made me think it was sort of adjacent to Conference and Paranoia and Me Squared because it's around that time when he's looking for Rimmer's yeah, diary really and is, looking for it? so it's really sort of like in that like that's where that's at least where the author is in terms of this diary. Yeah, but he's stuck writing in there. But but they're also doing an interesting thing with the cats getting more flamboyant, like like we just said. Like that's a that's an interesting wrinkle because the cat does get more flamboyant with his dress. Um, yeah. But that's in between mm. two and three again. So it's like this should be series one, possibly series two um, setting. I mean, I'm thinking about it too much because it's a daft bit of filler in a magazine, but. Well, I think it would be interesting if there was an like what this is, and this isn't a criticism, is that it's an attempt to tell an original story in contemporary dwarf, which at this point is the four of them plus female Holly yes. on the ship. Yeah. What might have been more interesting is rather than telling an original thing, is to try and slot something in to the series so that we get Rimmer's diary perspective on events that we've seen, and I think like a lot of fan fiction these days would go down that route. And certainly, someone like Big Finish, all their stories are set with, like, they find a time within the Doctor Who universe to set something, even if it's, so. I think some of them are set within televised stories, because there's a brief two minutes where this particular combination of characters are together, and because they're in a TARDIS, you know, there might have been a trip in between that we didn't see. <laughs> Interestingly, the, you know, you can go from talking about fan fiction to, to Big Finish in <laughs> one smooth action. <laughs> I've always had a, a prejudice against fan fiction, which I know is unfair because it's such a huge oeuvre that there's bound to be good stuff and bad stuff. But I think at the time when I read the most fan fiction, most of the stuff that I encountered was bad. And this is, even though it's in an official magazine, it is fan fiction. And it is. It's not very. It is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> there's two bits of good Red Dwarf fan fiction that I'm aware of, and that is The Last Temptation of Crichton and uh, Seb's. Um, little short story about Lister when he worked at, uh, as a trolley boy in the supermarket. It's a very nice little little piece. Show notes. The most interesting thing about this whole feature for me is the photo on the fourth page of it. Is this about the screen? <laughs> I did notice that immediately, yeah, that they've captured the uh, CRT phasing. <laughs> exactly. Ah. <laughs> uh, but no, the picture itself... Uh, That's uh, uh, it's a rarely seen shot from this particular setup, yeah. Because there's lo- like the uh, the big iconic series four photo shoot photo is this setup of the four of them in the science room gathered around Holly. Um, but this is, uh, like this particular shot is one that you very rarely see. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I might not have seen it anywhere else. To be honest, I don't think I have actually. 
I never say that with 100% confidence because I have terrible memory, but yeah, it's it's certainly not one of the most common ones. Yeah, I mean, whenever we have that, like, oh God, I've never seen this photo before, it's almost certainly on the DVD. It feels like it's from yeah. an actual scene rather than an actual promo shot. It's definitely trying to tell a story, isn't it? It yeah. looks to me like mm. Rimmer has caught Lister sleeping in the driver. Having a wank. Having a wank. Yeah, because I mean, he's got his jacket over his, yeah, over no, his groin. No oh dear, oh dear, Listy. Oh, Listy, you've been <laughs> wanking in the drive room again. Yeah. I stopped for quite a while, but I'm back on it now. Do you know what? <laughs> that is actually probably how quite a lot of Red Dwarf fan fiction starts. <laughs> Are you wanking, Lister, in the drive room? No, I'm choking the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, we've got something out of this feature. <laughs> Anything else to add about it? Um, Rimmer's out there. All of this transcription, the only thing Rimmer has a problem with is the final paragraph that Holly adds in. He's completely (laughs) fine with all the rest of the transcript, and it was just, you know, him losing his mind and ranting at Holly. But it's just that bit. It's like, fuck. But how does he cross it out and write bastard? He gets a scutter to do it. Yeah. There's a there's a whole there's there's five pages of him talking to the scutter to edit this particular bit in the next issue. <laughs> Shall we turn over? Yeah. yeah. The ne- very next thing is another advert that is identical to one in the first issue, <laughs> the Judge Dread. I'm trying Lauren to trying to remember one. whether it's the a different bit of artwork. It might be. Oh, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, still a good yeah. name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then. All the world is a conceptual map. Okay. The follow-up to the not-at-all-divisive feature from the last <laughs> issue. Uh, I don't think it's intentional, but the, the, the picture that accompanies it is bending my brain a bit. Because <laughs> the perspective good. doesn't match. <laughs> and it's really weird. Yeah. It's not, it's, it, there's something really weird about it. I get what they're doing, but yeah, it just, it just looks really odd. <laughs> it's just been done quite badly. Yeah. I, I'll say this about it. It's much snappier than the first part. I like it. I dig this stuff. I don't know why. I just no. really like this stuff. I mean, it is clearly like someone someone's been reading up on this stuff and is like, yeah, I've got lots that I can kind of get down about this. And so sometimes it does it does it does read a bit um, <laughs> a bit wankery. But this is a, a lot tighter and it's a cooler idea to like I'm interviewing the better than life creator in Better Than Life. You know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an AI version of. I, I find this one harder to follow. I think just because the concepts within it are yeah. sort of bigger and harder to get your head around. Yeah, about but, um, basically, yeah. If you make an exact copy digitally, then again, it's the same conversation you have with like holograms and how that works. Like, if you create an exact person of a hologram, if they were to live a normal life, would they have done exactly the same thing as a hologram, or has the hologram got independent thoughts and theories and changes? You know. And, you know, would those two lives live out the same way or would they fork? Because I assume that they would fork immediately as soon as, you know. If it was a hard light hologram, they might. But if soft light, that wouldn't work. Oh, sorry, fork. Fork, yes, (laughs) yes. But yeah, there's a bit here where when they're talking about, like, if you make an exact copy of yourself and then die, will that exact copy do the exact same thing? And so technically speaking, would the exact copy have the same problems as you do? Yeah, exactly. Again, they touch on that in um, Rimworld, don't they? Because yeah, yeah. they say that you know you are you are literally a copy of your original self, and it's like uh, had you not been killed in the accident, you probably you know you would have had these problems later mm. on. 
So he says, he says here, like, an, another scientist did exactly the same experiment and died at its conclusion when he drank hydrochloric acid instead of his expected celebration drink. Red Dwarf magazine. But but why did the copy not do the same? After all, it was exactly the same. And the, prof, the professor says, because there was only one container prepared. That's, that's almost a... A hitchhiker's ah. gag, you know, like <laughs> it's very, yeah. I, I like it because, well, he didn't do it because there was only one beak of hydrochloric acid. It's like, yeah, um, I, I quite like that. It just brings some interesting ideas and, and, and points. Fanfic that is like was really, really tangential. I guess you're not dealing with any of the main characters, so you've got a lot more freedom and you don't fall into all the same pitfalls that no. you would with writing characters that have already been conceived by someone else. And they're not even dealing with the same fictional creator as Better Than Life yeah, as the true, novels. Yeah. An alternative uh, <clears throat> yeah, dimension. It, yeah, the connection to Red Dwarf is membrane thin <laughs> at this yeah, stage. Yeah. But uh, that's not a criticism. I think it's an interesting topic that Red Dwarf fans would be interested in. Yep. Yeah. And this is much shorter than the first part this is basically the perfect length i would say so this is yeah this is good i hope there's a few more of these because at least it's interesting we'll see yeah we fucking will there's a lovely big photo of craig charles looking so ugly if he's not the (laughs) ugliest man in the world he's pretty close god it's like and that's what makes lister good he's literally slime <laughs> this is series four of course because we've got the furry hat to go back to i think a conversation we had for the last episode furry hat <laughs> that's series four <laughs> that's how it goes Furry hat series four is, is that, that? <laughs> not furry it's, it's probably series five or three <laughs> but it's easy to tell the difference between the two because craig looks slightly different in three Okay. Apart from February, Speaking... who has 28. It's, I'm going to say, it's like, remember, remember the furry hat. Remember, remember the taxman's run pen. <laughs> I do need that. I do need that reminder because I get him and River's dad and yeah. fucking everyone yeah. mixed up. Baldy moustache lads. I'll deal with it. Yeah, and one of them turns up in the comic strip in this issue, mm-hmm. but we don't know which one. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, we mentioned Series 3. Mm-hmm. Let's turn over Leaf and get the Red Dwarf program guide pilot. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Dwarf episode guide for Series 3, which is obviously the most sensible place to start. They <laughs> hang a lampshade on it. It's like, oh, we're starting with Series 3. <laughs> but, like, genuinely... Why aren't they starting with Series 1? They, they don't say why. <laughs> they just say, oh, yeah, we're doing it in the wrong order. Hey. I mean, not not only is that the logical one to start with, it is the best one to start with when it comes to being it, the most wanted, presumably, to be read. It's the one that people need the info about. Yeah. Sorry, I've just been flawed by the comprehensive virtuals guide to all five series of the show. <laughs> yeah, <I suppose> so. <laughs> Fuck. But yeah, I wonder whether this is a, a, a Grant Naylor decision to not cover one and two but then again they have an advertisement for series two later on spoilers yeah yeah i wonder if part of it was that they didn't want to spoil the plots for series one at this stage because it was because of the comic strip oh well they were (laughs) do they do future echoes next no but they do (laughs) they have the episode explanation of what happens in the in the last issue yeah 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 Yeah, the beginner's guide yeah Immediately after the, <laughs> it's true. 
Um, it's possible because at this point they probably knew that Series 1 was coming out on VHS the following year. So maybe they were just like, just wait. 94 was when it came oh, out. Oh, fuck, it. right, of course. Yeah. Um, someone should do a guide to those VHS releases. Stop teasing it. I haven't edited it yet. <laughs> this is why I keep teasing it. This has synopses mm-hmm. for all of Series 3, quotes, broadcast dates, notes on the cast. And I found it interesting, and I don't know whether it's a mistake or a decision, that in Polymorph... See, rather than just having a list of... It doesn't say, like, Callie Greenwood, Rimmer's mother, Simon Gaffney, Arnold. It's written in a more prose style. Mm. It's just a little short paragraph about the guest cast for that episode. But it omits the most prominent guest cast member from Polymorph, which is Francis Barber. Yeah. Doesn't mention her at all. Ah, interesting. Maybe, maybe they knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Craig Charles and Chris Barry both get to play the Polymorph is a really strange thing to say, isn't it? And I don't think it's strictly true, because uh, Chris Barry plays the Polymorph when Crichton gets zapped, the Polymorph is being Rimmer. But Craig Charles plays the second polymorph at the end. He doesn't play the polymorph. Spoilers. Polymorph. <laughs> should put a polymorph in it. I have just realised that I completely misread that sentence. <laughs> I read that as Craig Charles and Chris Barry both get to play with the polymorph. <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, they do. And that's that's the cast note. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that's what they said. Well, the first line of the synopsis is Danger, the ultimate warrior is on the loose. And I think that fits in, ties in quite nicely to early 90s it certainly does. Uh, pop culture. <laughs> ultimate warrior, also a racist. That makes sense. I mean, he's, yeah, a, he's an old white man. He was an old white man. Um, <laughs> God rest his soul. God, God bless him. Yeah. But other than that, this is like you know they're good at they're good at writing punchy synopsises. Yeah. To be fair, these are really these are really yeah. good. They, they weren't boring to read. Yeah, it's a good mix of explaining the plot, but and it gets in a few of the gags from the episode as well yeah. in a neat way. It it doesn't necessarily spoil the ending of the plot, but it doesn't avoid spoilers either. If you know what yeah. I mean, like yeah. Yep. It doesn't. It doesn't go out of its way to avoid giving things away, but it it doesn't do it as a matter of course. Yeah, it's slightly teasery, so it works if you've seen it, and it works if you haven't seen it. On the other end of the spectrum, when it comes to cast notes, like time slides is fucking packed. Like they go out of their way to name absolutely everyone. It is very odd that Francis Barber is missed. <laughs> it must be a mistake. Just forgot about it. Yeah, I do like that they mention Chris Berry plays Frank. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? It doesn't mention it's Mark Steele and the woman uh, <laughs> from the skiing. I mean, correctly, because they shouldn't have been credited. But, uh, yeah, they do leave that out. So that's why they needed three different revisions of the programme guide. <laughs> yeah, they kept forgetting. Yeah. Oh, fucking Francis Barber. <laughs> wasn't because new episodes kept getting made or anything. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's just interesting just to see, like, this very clearly the beginning of that process. can't remember if the programme guide was official. I don't think it was, was it? No, not in the same way that the companion was. Right, yeah, okay, makes sense, because it was a bit more, well, fanny, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a big fanny. It was a massive fanny cake. <laughs> All right, more fun overleaf. The The final full feature here is the Red Dwarf fun page. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are. It's a gyro day, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. It, it is what it is. I mean, to be honest with you, at least they've actually bothered to actually do something, an actual, like the riddle. It, uh, it's better. It's inc- yeah. very obvious. The riddle is actually something that you can play along with, yeah. Of course, it's been censored, so I'll, I'll read the uncensored version now. So, my, <laughs> my first is in Smega, because I'm such a git. My second's in Tidy and Lickety Split. My third is in Woman that I'll never get. My fourth is in Exams, I've failed the whole set. My fifth is in Ace, but also in Hole. My sixth is an officer, my impossible goal. My whole is a smeghead, a goit and a prat. I'm dead, but I'm still a complete and total cunt. There you go. So full, that's the full uncensored version. That's not what it says. Why is there a silhouette of a cat next to it? Good question. Cos Lister. <laughs> There's no mention of cats anywhere. <laughs> the artist loves fucking no, he doesn't love fucking no. cats. <laughs> fucking loves cats. There we go. <laughs> I don't know if the comic book artist did the illustrations for the rest, but maybe he did. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's not credited. In the credits it says artwork by Alan Burroughs, but specifically in the comic strip uh bit. Because there's also yeah, the the things with the all the worlds of conceptual map, there's some illustrations there. There's some other little bits and bobs. The illustrations for the cookery page isn't credited either. Oh yeah, yeah. That's some actual original artwork. I don't mind actually on the fun page the gag of spot the difference <laughs> or whatever it is, what's the odd one out with these telegraph poles and they're all identical. Yeah. That's that's a that's a fair joke. And and in the answers, um Rimmer <laughs> doesn't know. Doesn't know. That's is yeah the fourteen B thing. Yeah. It's decent, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> decent. I would have loved a proper puzzle page every every month. Yeah, people touched on that in the comment. Yeah. That would have been. Better. Does that actually happen later, or does that not happen at all ever? I could not reveal. Oh, oh. see, I really want to know. I can't remember. I really want to no. know how many quizzes. <laughs> I, are, are we going to see the return of quizzes? Because there's no quiz this this one. There's no quiz in this one, but apparently there's one in the next issue. So. Oh, yeah. i get my fucking revenge. There is. I'll, um, I'll notify you both in due course which page not to read. <laughs> Excellent. But before we get to that point, there is just one more thing, which is a advert. Very for exciting. series two, this might be my favourite page of the whole video. fucking yeah. <laughs> like this is really cool. I don't, I've never seen this advert, and this is one of those things I would have stared at as a child, like just stared at this advert, like almost trying to will these videos into my hands. <laughs> a sort of penny crayon, exactly. Like penny like a cat with some milk. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly. I don't think this is an actual sort of advert advert, if you see what I mean. This wouldn't have been in any other magazine. I think yeah. this has been put together made by the mag because so. there's no disclaimer on it that says advertisement. It's more they've done it as a news flash type thing, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you wouldn't have seen this in any other mag. It's nice. I mean they've been given nice clean images of the Which they've the cropped in Which the they've... Yeah. <laughs> What would they have you what 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 was the I mean, just maybe, maybe none of us are going to know, but what was the desktop publishing um, scene uh, like in '92? Good question. Uh, scissors and paste. So what would have been scissors? Because there know. would have been some software probably on Macs or. I have no idea how this yeah. stuff is done in the olden days. If anyone listening knows, 
do let us know in the comments. So we need to write. Um, we need to do. We need. We just almost done the magazine, guys. We just need to write the next issue page. Uh, anyone got any ideas for the, the background? Should we maybe have something kind of nice, neutral, so it's easy to read, or should we just make it look like someone has been murdered in the print room <laughs> and, then, and then just slap some white text on top of it? I like the concept that maybe this was yeah pre pre desktop publishing. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they they had to write and make the magazine in order. <laughs> so, oh, phew, nearly done. <laughs> nearly done. Oh <laughs> shit! I've got, got my finger. finger. <laughs> It's like laying train track in front of you. That grommet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Next issue. Also the, the preview for our next uh, Smegazine rack. Uh, the end, the conclusion. Or is it the conclusion, the end? No, you got it right the first time. It's the end, the conclusion. Uh, Cat's Fashion Tips. Brilliant. Something to look forward to. Hattie Hayridge. How does she get by in life with no arms, legs or body? We quiz the talking head. Hazzy Hayes' interview is going to be interesting because she'll have done her last series of Red Dwarf but not necessarily know that yet. Yeah, because that interview was was recorded on that Sunday uh, in 91, yeah. in November 91. Yeah, she she was about to do her last Red Dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. So this is basically just finding out when people got sacked during Series 5. <laughs> <laughs> Unbeknownst to this magazine, they happened to turn up at a really interesting time yeah, behind yeah. the scenes. Really did, really cool. I mean, having said that, every time from Series 5 onwards was a really interesting time behind the scenes. Basically, as soon as yeah. Ed buy fucks off, everything goes to shit. Yeah. And has continued to go for shit for 30 yeah. Anyway, episode guide, another issue, another series, really selling it to us there. <laughs> uh, what fucking series are you doing? Uh, readers letters, we really will have your letters by the time we put together issue three, so we might even print some of them. So yeah, that presumably by the time episode uh, issue three goes to print, they've got the letters in from that were sent after issue one, because they'll also be... Well, plus a free badge, another competition, all the latest news from home and abroad, and a partridge in a pear tree. So yeah, another competition. There's going to be another caption competition I can exclusively reveal. But you will still have time, anyone who's listened to our first magazine rack, you still have time to get your captions in for that one. Because yeah, as you're probably told by the fact that we're nearly finished uh, with issue two, (laughs) it's issue three in which that gets resolved. Yeah, The podcast will not come with a free badge. Because that's incredibly difficult to distribute through a, a standard podcast app. Yeah, we'd we'd need to run a whole like Kickstarter to fund the the, the printed run of. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll create a badge that you can three D print yourself. There you go. That's that's what I'll do. Let's make it an NFT. Yes, I was about to fucking say. Like, make it an <laughs> NFT, and then you can put it on your avatars. And on GNT, on GNT we'll give you a hexagonal avatar. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. And finally, one last thing. Back cover is a picture of uh, Danny from, or the cat, rather, from Justice. You can see in the background a bit of, uh, very recognisable bit of Sunbury Pump House. On my printed copy, this is extremely purple. (laughs) It's like very sort of blue. It looks like, I can't tell whether it's my print copy is kind of like got a bit of sun fade on it for some reason. Or whether that's just the photo. What does the PDF look the like? The PDF looks just very blue and tones of red in there. But it's like it's 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 almost like he's lit from with a blue gel. I think that's that's yeah. basically Yeah, maybe maybe this is how it's supposed to look. Yarp. We've got late breaking mail from 
a male, Simon Bromley, of oh, Sheffield. Okay. He says, um, I trust the issue's card attachment is covered in this episode of what we are recording right now. What the fuck is he talking about? I was not aware. Basically, I have all the magazines, but I don't have them with the free gifts attached or with any of the original accoutrements that came with Makes them. Sense. So when we saw this tweet, I did not know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> However, having Googled it, I can find one image and one image only at this stage of what it of this magazine with the with a, a bit of card attached to the front, <laughs> which will be link in the show notes. It says Red Dwarf video competition. Forty Red Dwarf videos and a video recorder are up for grabs in our Smegtastic prize competition. Details over leaf. So, uh-huh. presumably, this was something that came up post the actual magazine going to print, but they had an opportunity to print a little postcard-sized thing with the details of a competition on and attached to the front because there's no mention of it anywhere no. within no. the magazine. No. There's nothing in the contents of the editorial that says like don't miss the competition on on the attached to the front cover. So I've gone through this whole thing not knowing that there was a competition. Yeah, so if anyone has that, do let us know. In fact, scan it in. <laughs> like, show us uh, what the other side of that card says. I'm pretty confident Sai will have it, because that's probably why he knows about it. Well, then he should fucking get off his ass and do something about it rather than tweeting us. <laughs> ah, Ganymede Titan. See, yeah, all the others, I know... Well, I assume all the others... Um, I, I think that I know when other magazines originally had something attached to them because there's stuff like, like the next one comes with a free badge they yeah. mention that was trailed yeah. at the end of this there's a there's a bit on the cover that says free badge, <laughs> there's a bit inside saying hope you enjoy your free badge so I can talk about that because I know about it but yeah, that is all for this issue of this magazine and therefore this edition of this magazine Rack Dwarfcast. So leave your comments about either the magazine or the Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv also home to the Smega Drive uh, which is the very latest and very greatest in Red Dwarf meme making technology. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen it check out the Smega Drive, we're very proud of it. Uh, or you can tweet us Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay happy, stay warm. Staley Bridge has two known entries in the Guinness Book of Records for 1995. The pubs with the longest and shortest names in the United Kingdom. The longest is named the Old 13th Cheshire Astley Volunteer Rifleman Corps Inn on Astley Street. And the shortest is the Q Inn on Market Street. And as always... Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. After the exam, Lister gets called into the... Don't... the diary room. Honestly... One big brother is leaking. <laughs> yeah, you'll never, you'll never get it out of your head. <laughs> After the exam uh, is when Lister is called into the diary room. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So yeah, last week, last no. So on the last magazine, rack, definitely we asked not you fucking your... last week, mate. No. <laughs> So on the last...
<laughs> that look what you made me do. He's dying. Like a lion. Our first letter this week uh, is from. <laughs> so like points of view. Into... <laughs> well, I nearly went into. We've received this letter from a young man. <laughs> Um, I was reading the Beano for sure. Mm. Beano. <laughs> we're getting, we're, we're losing it. Sorry. <laughs> Show notes. Show notes. If I can find it. Yeah, it's on GNT. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, good. You know that website? Well, yes. <laughs> 20 years, mate. 20 years. There's shitloads have happened. There's too much content. <laughs> too much I've GNT. forgotten about half. Well, why are we recording this? <laughs> this is just going to be more content. <laughs> this, is, this is actually getting ridiculous.